I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, as we come to the Lord's Word this morning. Semper reprimanda. It's a Latin phrase which means always reforming. Last week, we remembered the work of God in the 16th century to bring biblical reformation to his church on Reformation Sunday. And this sermon was supposed to be preached that week, but the Lord had other plans. Now, this Reformation was sparked by Martin Luther in his famous 95 theses hammered on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And it was given its clearest theological articulation by John Calvin in his work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. You see, over several hundreds of years, errors had crept into the institutional church. There were false doctrines concerning the nature of salvation, the sacraments, the authority of tradition, and the role of church government. There were also false and harmful practices, such as praying to the saints, self-flagellation, and the selling of indulgences, which was basically the forgiveness of sin through monetary contributions. The Reformation was aimed at returning the church to its biblical roots and foundation, to return to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude verse 3 says. However, about a century after the Reformation, the zeal and the power of the movement had begun to fade. While the church had been faithfully and rightfully reformed, a new generation of men and women needed to be changed. It was in the midst of a church struggle in modern-day Netherlands that a minister wrote a devotional book. And here he penned this famous phrase, The church reformed, the church always reforming. And what he meant by this phrase is that the church had been reformed. The doctrine and the practices of the church had been returned to their biblical foundations in the Reformation of the 16th century. However, these truths do no good unless our hearts are also reformed. You see, the church had been reformed in its doctrine and its practices, but the human heart must always be in the process of reforming. As a Presbyterian church, Rivermont is within this Reformed tradition. We believe that the articulation of doctrine and practice within this tradition is the most biblically faithful. If we didn't, we wouldn't be Presbyterian. However, as we remember our historical heritage, we need to be reminded that the outward reformation of the church does us no good unless it leads to an inner reformation of the heart. We can have biblical truth and right practices, but still have hearts that are filled with falsehood and sin and that are far from God. We may have solid theological documents that articulate a biblical faith, but until this faith has changed our hearts, we are not truly reformed. Semper reformanda does not mean that we need to continually change what the church believes, always rewriting our confessions and catechisms, always updating our belief in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Rather, temper reformanda means that each of us must be reformed in our hearts. We must personally be changed. The powerful spirit that brought reformation to the church some 500 years ago must also bring reformation to our hearts today. In our passage for this morning, the Lord Jesus is confronted by a group of powerful religious leaders. And they want to know why Jesus' disciples do not follow their religious regulations. If Jesus was truly leading a movement of God that was aimed at pleasing God, would He not require His followers to obey these rules? But Jesus responds that true holiness, true heart change does not come from following the outward traditions of man, but rather by the inward reformation that comes from the Word of God. And this is what we will see this morning. If we would be always reforming, we must submit to God's Word alone. We must uproot false belief. And we must aim for inward heart change over outward ceremonial practices. So here now, the Word of the Lord, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If someone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's go to him now in prayer. Guide us, we pray, O God, by your word and your spirit, that in your light we may see light and in your truth find freedom. 
and in your will discover your peace. We pray, O God, that your word would pierce our hearts and that you would take that which is stone and replace it with flesh. Would you write your law upon our hearts and give to us faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, as we hear your word. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. One of the main doctrines that came out of the Reformation movement concerned the doctrine of Scripture itself. You see, there was a debate within the church concerning the level of authority that was to be given to tradition in relation to the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church held that tradition was to be of equal authority in matters of faith and practice. But the Reformers argued that Scripture alone is the final authority in what we are to believe and how we are to live out our faith. This question of authority, whether it's the Word of God alone or whether it's tradition, is what creates the conflict we see play out in our text for this morning. Look down and see what's happening in verses 1 through 2 to get a bit of the context. It says there, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. A few things to understand about what's going on here. First, we see that there's a delegation that has traveled from Jerusalem that was in the south up to Galilee, which is in the north, to confront Jesus. This means that word of Jesus' ministry and teaching had made its way all the way down to Jerusalem. And the Pharisees felt that what he was teaching and doing was significant enough to go and travel all the way up to Galilee to address it. The second thing that we see is they're asking about his teaching. It would be one thing if they said, well, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? That could imply that maybe... He just didn't understand. Maybe it was just an unintentional slip up. But they say, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Which means that they are saying, you are teaching people to not wash their hands. Why? Why are you doing that? And third, we see that the Pharisees are asking about a ceremonial washing that was biblically required for priests handling food within the temple, but was not biblically required elsewhere. However, it had become the tradition to require ceremonial hand washing for all Jews before all meals. You see, the exile had made the Jewish people very concerned about breaking the law of God. Some five, six hundred years before Jesus' time, the people of Israel had been taken from their homeland by the Babylonians. And after a generation, God graciously returned them to the land. And so they began to search the scriptures to understand why this had happened, why the Lord had allowed the exile to happen. And as they searched the word of God, the answer became clear. They had broken God's law. And so, to make sure that another exile would never happen again, 
they developed an elaborate set of requirements that were based upon God's word. Therefore, it was not merely the priests serving in the temple that were to wash their hands, but it was everyone, everywhere, every time, just in case. And not only was the law expanded, it was also elaborated on questions concerning how much water needed to be used in this ceremonial cleansing, the amount of time that was needed to be ceremonially clean, what parts of the hands, how much of the wrists had to be washed. All of these things were laid out so that the people of God could make sure that they weren't even getting close to breaking God's law. And so the Pharisees wanted to know, Why are you not enforcing our rules? But listen to Jesus' response in verses 3 through 9. Then he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God he need not honor his father so for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God you hypocrites well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you see instead of getting into the weeds of hand washing, Jesus goes right to the crux of the matter, responding with a question of his own. Why are you raising tradition above the word of God? For the word of God alone is the only rule for faith and practice. He demonstrates their folly first with an example. You see, there was a tradition that Jesus refers to here where a child could shelter their resources from helping their elderly parents if they said, oh, these resources can't be used to help my parents because they've been dedicated to God. So for an example, maybe a child's elderly mother needs a home and he owns an extra home, but he says, you know, sorry, mom, this home's dedicated to God. So you can't stay there. Yes, I'm charging rent for somebody else to stay there. And yes, I'm getting money from that that I can spend on myself but I'm sorry it's dedicated to God and in doing so they've taken this tradition that says you can dedicate something to the Lord and they use it as a shelter from honoring their father and their mother it was tradition and so it was approved but it contradicted the word of God it went against the very heart of the word of God Second, Jesus quotes Isaiah to reveal the hypocrisy of their attitudes. For they were more interested in keeping their man-made traditions than seeking obedience to the Lord because their hearts were far from the Lord. When we come to times of need and hardship, it's common for us to make our own laws and rules to make sure that we're safe, to protect ourselves like The Jews were trying to protect themselves after the exile. We take the word of God and we expand and add so that our implications and extrapolations of biblical principles become functionally raised above God's word itself. Great disunity and fracture has plagued the 
evangelical church over the past year and a half for this very reason. For we have sought to faithfully deal with the COVID pandemic, minister in the midst of a politically contentious season, and lead and guide through times of racial tension. But we have seen brothers and sisters in Christ break bonds of unity because of their disagreements over secondary matters, over issues of masks and vaccines and presidential politics and stances on racial justice. People are asking, why don't you wash your hands? Why do you vote for this candidate? Why don't you protest? Why do you protest? And we add these rules and then we judge our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ according to our traditions, our man-made regulations. But you know what they do? They don't keep us safe. They don't make us more pure. Rather, when we elevate tradition above God's Word, our extrapolations of the Gospel above the Gospel itself, it makes our hearts hard. And they alienate us from the body of Christ. When the implications that we draw from Scripture begin to trump Scripture itself, we find that we are far from the Lord. And we take opinions that we might rightfully have, that we have drawn because of the circumstance that we are in, but then we apply them to everybody else and we elevate them to the place of God's Word and we judge others based upon our traditions. If we would be a church that not only survives this season, but thrives in the midst of this generation, we must be a body who is joined under one final authority alone, the Word of God. For when we raise our implications and our traditions above the Word of God, our hearts grow hard and our fellowship with Christ's body is fractured. Semper reformanda. It means that the Word of God alone is our rule for what we believe and how we are joined together. Now, The Reformation was not only about teaching right doctrine, but it was also about countering false beliefs. That is, it was about planting good seed, but also uprooting weeds that had crept into the church. The main theological point of conflict of the Reformation was centered on the doctrine of justification, which means how one comes to be in a right relationship with God. Now, the Roman Catholic Church taught that man was brought into relationship with God through the mediation of the church. And if an individual was faithful and grew in holiness through the rituals of the church, then after all sin had been purged from them, they would finally be justified, that's accepted by God, and into His salvation. This would normally occur following somebody's death after they had suffered for a prolonged period of time in purgatory, in which their sins would be cleansed from them through their own suffering. And that's why indulgences met with such acceptance from the general population, because it said you can get your relatives out of purgatory into into heaven if you will buy this piece of paper. But the reformers said, this is false. 
This is not biblical, for it contradicts the truth that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. The Word of God teaches us that a sinner is accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone and is sealed for eternity the moment he believes the gospel message. We do not suffer for our sins, but Christ suffered for our sins fully and paid the full price. And therefore, this false doctrine had to be uprooted out of the church for it was causing the people of God anxiety concerning their salvation and falsely resting on man's work over God's grace. In our passage, we see that Jesus teaches that if true heart reformation is to come about false belief, then it must be uprooted from our lives. Look at verses 13 and 14. There Jesus says, or rather, then the disciples came and said to Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. I always laugh a little bit when I read that first verse. I'm sure that Jesus knew that he had offended the Pharisees. But he wasn't that concerned. It seems that in every generation, those who are the most self-sanctimonious are also those who are the most easily offended. There's something within us that believes the more sensitive we are to other people's words or actions, the more holy we must be. But being offended is not a sign of holiness or true heart reformation. Rather, it's a sign of immaturity. And defensiveness. For true holiness allows for correction and is open to change. And if we would be a people who grow in holiness, then we must be a people who are willing to be changed. We must be willing to look at the beliefs and practices of our lives and ask the hard questions about what needs to be uprooted. As we saw in the first point, the standard of faith and practice is the Word of God. So what in our lives does not align with God's Word? Where have we allowed the ever-changing standards of the world to set our course instead of the never-changing Scriptures? What would it take for a movement of the Spirit of God to come in our generation? What would a reformation in 21st century America mean? Well, first, it would mean that we return to the Word of God. And second, it would mean the uprooting of false beliefs and practices that have found their way into the church. Today, politics have invaded every space of our lives. Everything is political and colored by political implications. Sexuality, marriage, sports, health care, education... The children's toy aisles has become political. Drinking Coke has become political. Pronouns are political. Caring for the poor is a political statement. Backing law enforcement is a political statement. As a culture, we have opened the door and have allowed political discussions to take over everything to the point that we will pick our cell phone coverage and our credit card provider based upon the politics of the company that runs them. 
It's causing fracture in our communities, our schools, our homes, and in our churches. And this politicalization of all things is merely a return to the law as a means of being justified. If you say the right words and avoid the wrong words, then you will be accepted. But if you stray from party orthodoxy in any way, then you are rejected and you are not allowed within the community any longer. And if we would have a reformation in the 21st century, we will have to return to a church, to a faith that is in Christ alone as a means of being justified and accepted within the body and accepted by the Lord. For we have allowed politics more than the gospel to shape what and how we view one another. This past week, I was listening to a podcast And it was talking about a general survey that's done every year across the United States. And they ask about various aspects of of people's uh, political and social lives. And they began to see an interesting trend that they didn't know quite how to explain. It began with seeing Catholics identifying themselves as evangelicals. They thought, that's interesting. And then Mormons started identifying themselves as evangelicals. It's like, well, that's a little bit confusing. And then Jewish people started identifying as evangelicals. What? And then Muslims, self-proclaimed Muslims, said that they were evangelicals. And they were like, what is going on here? And they began to dig deeper and ask some questions about what they meant by evangelical. And they realized that evangelical had nothing to do with believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather, it meant that they aligned with a particular political view. It meant that evangelicalism has been so co-opted by a political view that Jews and Muslims and Mormons and Catholics say that they are evangelical and it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Because we have allowed politics to invade our churches and to invade our pulpits. Now the world, when they hear good news of Jesus Christ, they think it means a political platform. Shame on the church. That we have so allowed politics to take over what it means to be a Christian. Because the good news is not a political platform. It's that Jesus Christ went to the cross and poured out His blood for our sin. That He died and that He rose again. That we might die to sin and we might live to righteousness. Our faith is not In a party, our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. And if our church and if our nation would experience a reformation today, we cannot give ourselves over to outward traditions of men, but we must uproot this practice in which we allow our politics to define what we believe and not to allow what we believe to change our political views. Semper reformanda, it means that we have to uproot all false belief and be unified 
in Christ Jesus alone. You see, the promise of the new covenant is that the Lord would change our hearts. And this is exactly what Jesus is teaching His disciples in this passage. Real holiness is not outward. It's inward. Look at verses 17-20. through 20. It says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In these words, Jesus is not countering the idea of ritual cleanliness. There was a place for the ceremony and the laws of the Old Covenant worship. However, what he is doing is explaining that true holiness is not attained by outward ritual, but rather by inward heart change. It's very easy for us to begin to think that the problems of sin and holiness will be solved if we properly cleanse our environment, if we get the right laws in place, that we will be able to protect ourselves from sin. And so, if we ensure that our children never see a movie or listen to music that portrays premarital sex, then we can ensure their chastity until marriage. Because we can control the environment. If we make sure to put on a happy face when we're in public, then we can make sure to avoid depression. If we avoid all stressful situations, then we can ensure our anxiety will never flare up. Right? Control the environment. I know a man who struggled with addiction since he was young. And he decided that he would go into the military because this would give him discipline and he could get away from temptation. But temptation was there. And his alcoholism caused him to be discharged from the military. And so then he decided, you know, I need to move to a new town, get away from my old friends, get a fresh start. And yet again, after this move, his addiction cost him his job and his relationships. And so he thought, you know, I need to move yet again, because if I could get away from this situation in this place, I will be able to start over. And yet again, he fell into the same patterns. Why? Because it wasn't where he was living. It wasn't what he was doing. It was his heart that followed him wherever he went. The Pharisees thought if they washed their hands and if they washed their hands the right way and if they got everybody else to wash their hands the right way and they set down a rule and said, everybody, wash your hands this way, then they would be right with God. But the Spirit of God alone can change the human heart. Seper reformanda. It means that the heart that is the target for change and not outward behaviors for the word can for the world rather can only offer behavior modification get the right environment and cues and you'll be free from your pain and hardships but the word of god tells us that the problem is not outward it's inward it's the human heart that is the root of evil in this world And therefore, if we would be a people who are always reforming, we must be a people who are always seeking heart 
change, who are always more concerned about the work of the Spirit than the letter of the law, we must always be seeking to see the power of the Gospel bringing new life, not submission to man-made rules and behavioral regulations, but rather submission to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and Him alone. The struggles of this time are not so unprecedented as we would like to believe. In many ways, they mirror the struggles that the church has endured throughout the ages. There's always been political, social, and health crises with which to navigate. In 1527, the Black Plague hit the city of Wittenberg, Germany. Ten years following the spark of the Reformation, Luther had had to deal with political upheaval, religious controversy, literal class warfare, peasants uprising, killing those who had more than them, and now a pandemic. Yet the answer that Luther gave was never change the environment, but always aim for the heart. Over the last year and a half, this quote from Luther has been repeated several times, but it's worth reading Again, for Luther said when asked how to respond to the plague, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, He will surely find me, and I have done what He has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. You see, Luther's response was not to lay down a law, He is being encouraged when he wrote this. He was being encouraged by his fellow pastors to flee the city, to get away. But he refused. However, he didn't condemn them for their decisions. He said, you need to make that decision based upon your circumstances. I'm not going to lay down a law. Because the way that we walk through these uncertain times isn't by creating a set of rules and expectations, but rather by knowing it is in Christ alone that we are accepted and justified and by which we might walk a path of love. For he had learned of God's word that we are not justified by our works, but by Christ alone. And therefore we are freed to love and to serve others and to put no confidence in the flesh. As we remember the Reformation this day, let its legacy be a people who, no matter the circumstances, no matter the hardships, seek the heart-changing Word of God that is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For our only hope in this life and in the life to come is in Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we confess that we make a law for ourselves and for others. And we desire to be accepted by it.
Oh Lord, would You change our hearts. Give to us the grace to go to Your Word alone as our final authority and to see our union with one another through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in His name that we do pray. Amen.